You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost, with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. I'm Mina Starziak-Hawk, and this is Mina AF, where I answer all of your questions and you can ask me anything. Can we talk about money? Can you still breastfeed with implants? You're both boss moms, and I'd love to know the story of how you met. Literally anything any of you want to hear. Listen as we build a community and get to know each other better. Today on Mina AF, we're joined by creator of Her First 100K and financial feminist, Tori Dunlap, and also one of my producers and the CEO of Edit Audio that makes Mina AF, Steph Colburn. Uh, And we're going to be talking all things money. And Tori and I actually got to meet when this all kicked off before I'd even recorded a single episode and was invited out to do the podcast panel at a huge advertising event in New York. And it was lovely. And I was very excited to talk to you more after the little snippet we got there. Just a brief rundown of my morning. Financially, it's been terrible. So that's what we're coming off of. You know, the whole, I have no money. I have employees. I don't know how I'm going to make money and then pay employees. So yeah, that's where I'm coming from. But can you kind of give everyone, you know, your brief rundown, like how you got started um, into this? Are you a finance major? Were you interested? Did you, yeah, all that good stuff. We'll have to talk about your morning in a second. Uh, But thank you for having me. Um, I am the founder of Her First 100K, which is a money and career platform for women. I believe I was put on this earth to fight for women's financial rights. I'm also uh, the host of the Financial Feminist Podcast, an author, I now get to say it, of the New York Times bestselling book, Financial Feminist. Oh, congratulations. Very Thank That's you. such a big deal. It was a big deal. Had a, a full-on meltdown. It's the thing I've been working towards for the last, well, very, very long time, but especially for the last six months to a year. But yeah, yeah. I had a... Great financial education for my parents growing up. And I thought, okay, everybody knows not to overspend on credit cards. Everybody knows how to save money. And of course, I realized very quickly when I got in high school and college that that wasn't the case. Mm-mm. And I was the friend all of my friends were coming to for advice and guidance about money. Mm-hmm. I graduated college in May of 2016. I'm now 28. And then, of course, Trump gets elected not soon after that. And I'm coming into adulthood, but really into womanhood in a very different country than I think many of us expected. And as I'm 22 and trying to navigate my career, navigate what my life's going to look like, I'm realizing that when I have money, I have options. 
When I have money, I have the ability to be in situations I want to be in rather than situations I'm forced to be in. I have the ability to donate to causes I believe in or travel or have kids or not have kids or get married or not get married. And I start realizing both in my own life, in being the friend that everybody's coming to, and then also in just learning a lot more about our financial system, that I truly believe that we don't have any sort of equality for marginalized groups until we have financial equality. Mm -hmm. So her first 100K started in late 2016 as a blog um, and kind of has now blossomed into the platform it is today, which is uh, three million, three and a half million people. Um, We're yeah, teaching women all over the world how to save money, how to pay off debt, how to start investing. We have our podcast, which is the number one money podcast in the world for women. We have our book. And it's just been absolutely crazy um, just how much it's grown, but also the impact we've been able to have. And also my own financial life. You, you mentioned, like, did you study finance? No, I studied organizational communication, which is like marketing with less math and theater. <laughs> like it was not the plan yeah. to be a finance expert. But truly, we run a feminist company that happens to talk about money. We run yeah. a company focused on on bettering women's lives through financial education. So you came from a family that valued teaching you about those kind of yeah. things, which I think is a great start um, because a lot don't. Huge privilege. Yeah. Yeah. A huge privilege. And a lot of schools don't incorporate that. I know no. when I got into college, um, a lot of my friends were like, I, this is all this little piece of plastic. It's free money. And I'm like, N- n- I mean, you were supposed to pay it eventually. Yeah. But I think particularly a lot of people that, you know, go through college and did you graduate with debt? Did you take out loans? Like what was your financial situation kind of starting off in the post-college adult world? Yeah, it's a great question. So neither of my parents grew up with a lot, especially my dad grew up pretty poor. And so their commitment was, okay, we're going to work really hard. We're going to try to learn everything we can about money so that we can better our own lives for our, for our kid. Um, and so hundred percent a privilege to have that financial education. And it was a really conscious effort on my parents' part. I didn't graduate college with any debt, which again is a privilege, but it was a conversation with my parents and I, they had saved some money. And I was also working three jobs while on campus, getting merit scholarships. I a hundred percent would not have been in the financial position I was as quickly as I was if I had graduated with student loans. And it's something that I love talking about because it's one of those things where it's like the student debt crisis is indeed a crisis. It's a billion dollars in the United States. And it's one of the reasons that people feel so behind financially is you're already starting in the hole when you're 22, 23. And like, what does that feel like? to already know, okay, I have to make certain decisions about the way I'm going to live my life because I'm already in debt. The fact that we, we were talking about John Mulaney earlier, he has this great bit about, you know, how crazy it is that, you know, we, we take a bleary eyed 17 year old and basically hand them a contract and say, you're going to pay a hundred thousand dollars to go to college. And they're 17 and they're like, okay. Mm. And they just, you know, sign on the dotted line, not knowing what's going on. And like, that's crazy that we ask a 17 year old or an 18 year old to make a decision to you know, decide what they're going to do for the rest of their life in their college major, in theory, and then also that they're going to pay a ridiculous amount of money to do it. Well, and I think most of the time it's not just a 17-year-old. It's also the parent or whoever they get to co-sign. It's just a huge amount of responsibility. But I also think there's yeah. luckily, um, at least in the States, which is what you know I'm more familiar with, the decision to do college, to not do college, to do a technical school, to go right into the workforce, to take a gap year all those things from when I was going from my like private Jesuit high school education into college um, was were not 
Like I it didn't even didn't even know the word like, oh, that's not socially acceptable. That's just not what you do. Like yeah. you go to college, you go to a four-year college. And even after I graduated, what I was doing, waiting tables while I was renovating houses was yeah. incredibly it, it wasn't like a real job. And, you know, my dad still wanted me to go to law school and like, what what are, what are you going to do when you grow up? And I'm like, I, I think I'm doing it. I don't know. But also was lucky to, I worked all through college, but um, my dad took on that responsibility for me, which again, is a huge, huge thing that most people don't have the ability to do. I think he's actually still paying. I think he has like 10,000 left and I'm almost 40. But um, one of the things that happened for me in college that I'm also interested about post-college. Like, did you immediately buy a house? Did you pay rent? What were the investments you made? Because the only time I've ever paid rent in my life was in college. And I worked for the landlord and I kind of saw, I was like, this is, this, if you don't have to, yeah. if you can figure out a way not to, this is a racket. So this is going to be really interesting, Ms. HDTV, to talk about because I do not own property. I am a multimillionaire who oh. does not own property. I rent the house I'm in right now. Like I don't own property and I live in Seattle, which is part of the equation is, you know, I love watching you flip houses, but oh my God, $88,000. Yeah. $88,000 doesn't get you anything. Most property here without, uh, you know, or most land here without anything on it is going to cost you at least 300, 400. So it's like, yeah, it's so interesting because I could afford to buy and I'm, considering it, seriously considering it for the first time in my life right now, but emotionally it is so difficult to get on board with paying $900,000 for a two bedroom. Like it is like, oh, it's just gee, rough. No, from coming from Indiana, I can't, I can't, I can't, I wouldn't, I'd be a tough pill to swallow. And if you're in the Bay area, if you're in New York, if you're somewhere in Miami, even more expensive, it's like mm-hmm. millennial buying house. You're like, it's not going to happen. I'm in New York and I've been looking because I, I just moved here from Canada and I was looking at buying a house in Montreal, which was drastically yeah. different. And it made less sense there because my rent was rent controlled and pretty cheap. Whereas now I'm like, I hate paying this much yeah. money in rent. Like I'm renting right now and it's awful. And I'm, I could be paying the same amount to pay down my mortgage. Like it's not that much different, but you need to have cash up front because you need to have like a pretty large down payment. And I think that there's this common narrative that you're like throwing away money if you rent. And I was Mm -hmm. told that when I graduated college by my well-meaning parents, and we actually went to look at property. And I talk about this, I tell this story in my book as well, that like I was having my parents tell me at 22, like you need to be a homeowner. And I was actually a day from closing on a house and I backed out. And it was 100% one of the best decisions I made because I was not ready to be a homeowner at 22, especially we were buying an hour outside of Seattle. I would not have had a social life. I would not have met anybody. I wouldn't have gotten to date. I would have been hanging with my parents every weekend because it was like the property I could afford was in my hometown, was in Puyallup, Washington, which is like an hour, hour and a half outside of Seattle. And so it's like, you're not throwing away money. Like I'm paying to live somewhere. I'm paying for the convenience of calling somebody else when the toilet overflows or when something breaks down. I wish. Yeah, true. (laughs) In New York, you're like, I don't get (laughs) shit. Um, But that's the thing that I think is such a misconception financially. And um, yeah, I talked with Ramit Sethi, who's another finance expert about it. We are both, you know, millionaires who rent and it's it, we're choosing to pay for the flexibility of that. Now that being said, yeah. I am like the, my nesting 
like impulse is going really hard right now where I'm like, I want to buy a house. I want to put up wallpaper. <laughs> you, you said you're 28. I'm 28 right? and I'm starting to do like, okay. I just want a project. Like I'm just like, give yeah. me a project. I think that does totally make sense, particularly given the geographical differences. And part of it was being interested in knowing like what your savings post-college expenditures were. So right out of college, you had no school no. loan debt um, and went into renting. And what did your life look like as far as employment, income, saving, um, savings plan? When did you start? This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have different stressors, some big, some small, that we carry around and that really weigh us down. And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to have a negative effect on us. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. For me, therapy has been so helpful, really learning those positive coping skills and to be the best version of myself. I know myself better and how to set the right boundaries that really work for me. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, then give BetterHelp a try. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule, and it's entirely online. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MinaAF today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MinaAF. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And did you already always kind of know that stuff or did you just learn as you went and mess up a lot of things, which tends to be my uh, educational style? It was a little bit of both. And I think one of the things we focus on when we talk about money at her first hundred K is it's like, you think you come out of the womb with like a good with money gene. You're either good with money or you're bad with money. And the yeah. truth is, is it's just like anything else. Like you have to learn it, right? Like I didn't, again, come out of the womb speaking fluent Italian or knowing how to play the tuba. It's the same thing with money. It's like, you're going to have to navigate this. You're going to fuck up. Like there's going to be things that happen. And so for me, I again, had that financial education from my parents and was constantly learning about money because I realized very quickly that money, again, meant choices and options and that money was a tool. Okay. If I wanted to travel, I needed money. How was I going to get money? Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, I want to start a business. Yeah. I need money. How am I going to do that? Um, I think the biggest financial mistake I made, and it actually, I did it on purpose. It's the introduction for my book is I took a job for the money I was able to negotiate $20,000 more than they wanted to pay me initially. And I ignored all of the red flags and took the job anyway. And then 12 weeks later, I had to quit the job because it was so toxic and actually spent three months unemployed. And it was still a great decision because I had an emergency fund. I was able to leave that bad situation. And I also realized that like 
$20,000 more, but you're crying yourself to sleep every night is not like the equal equation. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. And it was those kind of moments for me financially where it was like, yes, I know all of this on paper, right? Like I know how to save money. I know how to invest, which is again, a huge privilege. And it's part of the reason I do the work that I do today is to teach everybody all of this information that, you know, I know. Um, but it's also the realization of like some things you just aren't taught. You have to learn them which is like the realization of, yeah, you can negotiate more money, but if you're miserable, it's actually not going to make that much of a difference. If your boss is abusive, yeah. it doesn't really matter that you're making more money than you've made before. I would rather make slightly less money and be way more happy. And like, that's, you know, you realize mm -hmm. that from, from making the mistakes and, and going through those experiences. Well, that's kind of the thing with mm -hmm. owning a house or renting too, right? It's like, what is the money mm -hmm. worth? Like if you're spending money on rent, but you're enjoying the lifestyle you're living and having, you have like an awesome landlord who's doing things for you that you don't want to be doing, like that's an option that you have. If you want to be, you know, yeah, like buying a house, paying the same amount and yeah, putting up wallpaper, that's also a choice, but you have to decide what you want. <laughs> and it is a choice for some people, but it's it's not a choice for others, right? Like if you live in New York, you're, you're most of you are going to rent, right? Or like, Again, mm -hmm. I was talking about like, you know, student debt crisis, millennials, this like pipe dream of owning a home in a major city. It's just like not going to happen in the same way that it was 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. I mean, you, it definitely limits your choices. I mean, yeah. and being in the Midwest, like you can buy a house in the city. I mean, I'm one mile outside of like literally the little monument that's in the very center and you can get a house 250. I mean, it's going to be small, 200,000. And they go up to about a million, but that's nothing compared to my brother in San Francisco right. uh, or you in Seattle or in New York. So it's, uh, again, it's just, you know, do you do you want to be in the city and what city and, and, and making those accommodations? But for me, it very much was, I'm going to graduate. I got a construction loan, bought a house, renovated it. And my roommates that were in college just kind of moved with me to Indy and they're rent, I wasn't getting rich by any means, but it was paying my mortgage. Yeah. Um, so that just, that made sense for me in Indianapolis. So I think this is good that we're all kind of coming from different perspective. What was yours, Steph? Like, how were you raised and what was your like financial education coming into adulthood? I don't know if I had much financial education. First of all, I'm from Canada. So I do think there's a big difference there just with like what is expected of you going into school. Like I'm from the same generation where you're like, there's not really an option to do anything other than go to university. Like we were programmed to go to university and now there's too many people with bachelor's degrees and guess what? You need a master's degree now yeah. to get a job. So sorry that we did that to you next generation. <laughs> but, you know, our like four year university college program is like, I, I think it was $10,000 a year. So, you know, $40,000 is much more manageable than like a hundred to $140,000 mm -hmm. a year. Uh, $40,000 total, I mean. <laughs> um, so there's that big difference. I don't, I don't know if I was raised with any knowledge. I was very like punk and very averse to corporations and stuff like that. I like refused to get a bank account for a really long time. I had my first job. <laughs> I moved out you when I was me. really young. <laughs> like, kidding. no, seriously, like I had to get a bank account when I was young. Yeah which I did need my parents to help me with. But I had my first job when I was like 13. I worked until now. I've never not worked. And I moved out when I was very young. 
so I, I always had to have an amount of money, but I was very like scared of everything, which is interesting because I think a lot of times when people talk about money, you know, we talk about like how to save and how to uh, invest and how to like do all this stuff. But like there's the flip side of that that I feel like I came from, which was like how to actually like live your life with your money. Because I have like this fear that like constantly like the rug is going to be pulled out from under me and there's never going to be enough money. And that is like also not a healthy relationship to money. So I have that problem. Yeah. And I was I was listening to a couple of your podcast story and about uh, like financial abuse control, those kind of things. Um, and then the other thing that just kind of that you said, Steph, was because the way you were raised, you're always your attachment to money is kind of a fearful one. So it is so interesting how it's kind of the, these two different worlds that Steve and I have have come together uh, at, when we decided to move in together, when we got married, when we had kids, because I grew up, with, you know, my dad was an orthopedic surgeon. My mom was much younger. She had us the, the first three kids and then went back to law school. Um, but they were going through their divorce when I was three. So she was in law school and she had really nothing that was her own. I think partially because she was so young, she hadn't had time to establish it. But it was a very long, very expensive divorce. And I learned a lot of my financial habits slash fears from what I didn't want to see happen. Um, you know, both my parents have been divorced a handful of times. My dad's tended to be more expensive divorces, probably because he's a doctor. Um, but so much money moving in these really weird, unhealthy ways and it being a control mechanism like that. That you you can afford a better attorney if you have better money. You can fight longer if you have more money to keep paying your attorney. Like all these things. And then as I grew up, 100%, I think in a well-meaning way, but we were rewarded financially when we were successful educationally. So uh, if I got, you know, if I got A's, it was X amount of money per A. You'd got no money for B's. If I got all A's and a C, no money. C's cancel everything out. And C's average. But that's not how we were raised. Like, And, and I, I, I could get A's. That was fine. But it was this control mechanism. And then so you get the good grades, so you get the money, so you have the freedom to do the things with the money. And then immediately I realized, well, that's not freedom. Like This is a control mechanism. So I got my own job and worked from about the time I was 15 on. Because as you said, having your own money creates financial freedom, even from the age I was in high school, when it wasn't, you know, it wasn't in the job market. It was just financial freedom from my parents. So I could go to the movies if I wanted. I could buy the pants I wanted, any of those things. And I think partially, you know, my dad has seven kids now and, and a lot of divorces. And so he hasn't had as much opportunity I know as he would like to save. So a lot of my savings goals are more fear-based. Like I don't want to be working when I'm 80 if I don't want to. Um, and he's 75 and he's still, he's a great surgeon. He's still practicing, uh, but he's got an 18 year old son. So I think it's also kind of necessary for him. And then Steve came from this life that was very, very traditional, you know, two and a half kids, mom and dad. And when he went into college, his rug was pulled out from under him. And, you know, I'm not going to go into it too much because it's more his story to share, but his family lost everything. They lost their house. Um, he couldn't go to school. He didn't know he couldn't go to school. All these things happened so quickly. 
And for him, it felt so out of the blue because he wasn't in the know. So he constantly has this fear, even though he's successful, I'm successful. We don't necessarily need to be afraid, but we have these two fears that come together that have, we've made work, but definitely been, you know, conversation topics throughout our lives, even when we first got together. Um, And the your episode I was listening to this morning, Tori, was about having separate bank accounts. And we do. And it was weird for him because he didn't grow up that way. And I had to try to help him understand that, like, this literally has nothing to do with you. I need to have control, not because I don't want you and I don't trust you. It's it's just me. So we have our own separate accounts and then we have a shared one. And, you know, the, the groceries come out of the shared one and the, and the child care comes out of the shared one. But when he orders his hundredth pair of boots out of his account, I don't care. And when I buy another pair of jeans that I need like a hole in the head, he doesn't care. So that's kind of where we've landed. But very different perspectives coming into the relationship. And it continually, we're talking about schools for our kids now, public versus private and spending the money. And, you know, it's just... It's a lifelong conversation, no matter what phase of your life you're in. And people don't start talking about it till way too late in life, I think. Yeah. I mean, the emotions of money, it's so nuanced and very few people, especially even like in the personal finance space, want to talk about just how emotional or psychological money is. So the vast majority of money habits are actually cemented by age seven. Oh my gosh. Which means that unless you work to change it. You have cemented the way you will view money by second grade. And it's all influenced by what you saw your parents do, by what you saw the people around you do. Was there a belief that people with money are bad or evil? Is the pursuit of money bad or wrong? Um, Does money mean freedom or does money mean scarcity, right? And the vast majority, if I would, you know, to walk out on the street and ask 100 people, like, what emotion do you associate with money? It's most likely going to be fear, guilt, shame, judgment, stress, right? As opposed to what I feel, which is joy and abundance and ease and luxury. And I'm not not talking like Yves Saint Laurent luxury. I'm just talking like the ability to afford the things I want to buy or the flexibility Mm -hmm. to, you know, save money and, you know, progress towards, you know, the life that I want to live. And that's why I spent the entire first chapter of my book, Financial Feminist, talking about it is it's the longest chapter of the book. And we talk about all of the narratives you might have been believing about money, like talking about money is taboo or, again, the pursuit of money is wrong. You should not want money because that's greedy or money can't buy you happiness, which is bullshit. It 100 percent can. It 100 percent can buy you stability <laughs> and choices and options, which is I I think that's happiness. Which so is the gateway to happiness. To- yeah. Right, right. You have to start unpacking. Uh, It's like, you know, therapy. You got to start with your childhood, right? It's like, it's very uncomfortable. But in order to get better with money, I can't guide you how to pay off debt in a sustainable long-term way. Can't teach you how to budget. I can't teach you how to invest in the stock market until you start to understand your emotional triggers, your hangups. And almost all of them started when you were a kid watching your parents manage money. What are some of the best investments that you've made? (laughs) 
Oh, my people. I started hiring uh, even before her first 100K was a full-time thing. I started when her first 100K was still a side hustle in 2019. I was running it in addition to my nine to five marketing job. I hired somebody even for a couple hours a week. That was all I could afford. It wasn't like, you know, crazy amount of money. It was just like, I need some social media help. I need somebody to help me with graphics and stuff. And like that person actually just moved on a couple months ago, but she was with me for three and a half, four years. Um, and like, she was my first team member and that was just crazy. So yeah, I think that in terms of like our business, that was a hundred percent, um, something that was so important. And I think I see, especially with women entrepreneurs that we think we have to do it all. And we also have this assumption that it's like, no one can do it as great as I can. No one's going to care as much as me. And like, that's kind of true, but you have to, (laughs) like, if you want to grow a business, you have to start trusting other people. You have to train them how you want them. And like, you need to delegate because you, you cannot do it all yourself. And I think that's one of the reasons we were able to grow as quickly as we did is I hired uh, as soon as I could hire, I hired somebody. Um, in terms of my own uh, personal finances, uh, I started investing the moment I could when I was 21 or 22. I was maxing out my Roth IRA every year, and a Roth IRA is a retirement account, right? And so I was doing not just you know saving money, but I was actively growing my wealth when it comes to investing. And we know from statistics and from me now educating literally tens of thousands of women around how to invest that women are waiting longer to invest than men or not investing at all. And yes, budgeting is important. Saving is important. But the thing that builds your wealth for the average person is investing. Um, And for you, I think it's more like investing in real estate. And for me, it's Mm -hmm. more investing in the stock market. And you kind of have to figure out a way to grow your wealth that isn't just putting money in a savings account. Mm -hmm. I just want to ask, because it's like not lost on me that we're all white. um, And I do want to address that. Like we all have an inherent privilege. I'm sure we have many other privileges that, you know, aren't just our skin color and how we show up in the world. Like, how do you reconcile that financially? Or how do you talk to people about reconciling that financially? I think the first thing is to acknowledge it. I acknowledge it constantly and unabashedly. Um, and even in my conversations, right with you all, it's like, yeah, I graduated debt free from college, and that was a combination of hard work and also intense privilege, um, the, even the ability to go to college, right? Um, and I think that this is what we talk about when we talk about financial feminism: is it's not just individual choices, right? It's all of these systemic barriers, right, that you have to navigate to the best of your ability. Um, capitalism is not great for anybody. right? And I talk about in the book how I don't want to win capitalism because that means I have probably exploited somebody. But I also don't want to lose capitalism because that means deep suffering for myself and you know my family and people around me. So really what we're trying to do with Her First Center K is learn how to navigate and survive capitalism again to the best of our ability. And yeah, there's the realization of worked really hard to get where I'm at. Also ton of privilege. And I think even just the acknowledgement of that is really huge. And also the commitment that with that privilege came a responsibility for me. Oh, I realized not everybody had this financial education and I feel the fire in my belly every day I wake up to how can I get more women educated about money? How can we start changing the system that exists where, you know, it's not enough to just work hard. (laughs) That's not, yeah. <laughs> that's not the American dream is not work hard and then you're going to get money. Um, it's, it's 
all of the systemic factors as well. I wish. I'm, I have like another question that kind of ties to that. Like I own a mission driven company too. You know, it's a for profit company. So I have to right. make money. I want to make money. I want to profit. I want everyone that works there to profit. Yeah. How do you talk about wealth redistribution? Like, do you talk about that mm. in the book? Do you talk about like, you know, you you mentioned there's a formula for um, deciding how much you put in your emergency fund. Is there a formula that like you would think that we should be using for like wealth distribution and and reinvesting in our communities? I don't know if I have a formula and it might be something that I dig into because I think that's a really beautiful, beautiful question. I think that it can take a variety of different forms. We spend the entire last chapter talking about what we call like living a financial feminist lifestyle, which is like, again, when you're taking care of like, how do you use money as a tool to create the life and the world that you want to see? And, um, you know, it can take a bunch of different forms. For some people, it's like, I am only going to invest in the stock market with socially responsible companies, right? Or I am never going to shop at Amazon, right? And I'm only going to shop at small businesses. Or um, I am going to, again, tip a certain amount of money every time I go out. And I think that, again, every person kind of decides this for themselves. I think for me, the, the thing that I have decided is I am going to donate and just throw money to causes I believe in now at this point and also try to give as many people jobs as I possibly can and take really good care of them. Um, and we're also starting to do more like specifically mission focused work at her first hundred K because, um, teaching somebody about personal finance is important, but, Again, teaching you how to budget when you don't have two nickels to rub together doesn't really matter. We need policy change and uh, legislation and all of those things. And that's something we're we're starting to talk about now because we have a little money, because we have social media followers, because we have influences. How do we start actually influencing the laws that exist? In terms of a formula, though, I would love to noodle on that and get back to you. I think it's a really good question. I would love to know. <laughs> I mean, I, it's just interesting because like I this morning I read something that was like between 2020 and now or the end of 2022. So during the yeah. pandemic, two thirds of all of the wealth in America went to like four billionaires, like two thirds yeah, of all the wealth right. <laughs> like accumulated in those two years went to like five billionaires. Four people. Yeah. A lot of people see my work and they're like, she's perpetuating capitalism. And I'm like, no, you don't know my work then. Like truly, like I don't think billionaires should exist. I joke that like four billionaires can stay in. It's like Oprah and Rihanna and like Sarah Blakely. Like, like they could stay. Everybody else has to go. But like truly, I think that this is this is the the double-edged sword of capitalism is it's like if you choose not to participate, you either need to have a Discovery Channel show at a homestead in Alaska, right? Mm -hmm. Or you will suffer deeply. But at the same time, of course, if you're trying to like win capitalism at all costs, everyone else suffers around you. And I would argue you suffer as, as well. And so I think that that's just the really tricky thing that I've had to navigate both as a personal finance expert and also as an individual now, because I have, you know, I am in a higher tax bracket than plenty of people who are now my age. And it is the realization of, okay, I'm good. So now I have a responsibility to take care of people around me, to change, again, change the the communities into the kind of communities I want to see, um, and to start supporting other people who aren't cisgender straight white women in their, in their 
quests for uh, creating a more equal society. I do just want to like quickly add an anecdote because we talked about um, like donating money to other organizations. If you're listening and you are going to do that, it's actually more beneficial to the organizations if you donate the same amount every month rather than one lump sum. So add that add that to your budget as well. I think a lot of yeah places or like food banks especially they'll get like one large sum typically around the holidays, right? And it's like summer is actually the time food banks really need your support because kids don't have their subsidized school lunches anymore, mm-hmm. right? Or like again to your point, perfect example of like it's much more impactful, even a smaller amount, but month over month rather than this huge lump sum at one time. And if you don't have money, my whole team went to the food pantry yesterday and had the most fun, fulfilling, team building experience working at the food pantry and building the boxes that they ship out. So doing that, like uh, a lot of the decisions I think I've always, I've used like, do you have more time or money is kind of what I go to for a lot of things just as an easy, like, you know, arguing with my husband about having someone pooper scoop the yard. <laughs> okay, can we afford $10, $10 a week? Or do you want to spend 20 more minutes with me? Because I would rather spend 20 minutes with you. So same thing. I, you know, I I don't have a ton that we can give. We do have a give back yeah. program that we financially contribute. But the opportunities where my platform can help even more than money seems to be, you know, it, it's what I can do. And that works for the food bank because not only did we actually – do work while we were there, we have social media content from it yeah. and we'll post it and we'll share it and it'll inspire other people to do the same thing. And we kind of, we did actually talk about this when we were in New York on the panel, the whole idea of the the privilege that we do have, even though we're not the most privileged group, but, you know, as white women, what is the responsibility to do, you know, the quote unquote, the right thing or open the doors or like be, be a mouthpiece because people listen to you, mm-hmm. which is, I'm not saying it as well as I did on the panel. And now I'm like <laughs> in my head. Do you remember what we were talking about? I remember saying, you know, if you don't have the money to invest financially, there's other ways that you can invest. One of those is like being a body and, and doing the work. Another way is like advocating for the community. And the third way is shitting on the people that are doing it wrong. <laughs> well, I kind of mashed them up in my brain. I, I more meant like that because we all three of us have got to a point that we have a platform, then what responsibility comes with that? And you're saying you have this responsibility to help other women, you know, get this financial freedom. And I think the thing that across the board for me is important and why I think it makes sense for you know us to talk to each other um, on, on the podcast and the different people I engage with and the people, the guests I'll have on, which I think are very similar to a lot of your guests, is they're taking this platform that might have come easier to us because of our whatever-isms um, and educating them on other people that don't have that platform because they aren't as privileged, I guess, mm-hmm. is what I'm was trying to get at poorly. I don't think it was poorly. I think it was great. (laughs) I want to know one in the like last little while, what's like one thing that you bought yourself that you're like, like obsessed with. And then also one thing that you were like, oh, I really should get rid of that. I always love buying experiences. So like I actually hosted a bunch of friends for a dinner party yesterday and that was just really lovely um, and spent money to do that. And that was just great. 
Uh, one thing I regret spending money on or I need to get rid of. Um, I got a lot of clothes that I don't wear anymore, but I feel guilty because I spent money on them at some point. Um, and so I was like, it's just really hard for me to like get rid of them knowing how much I spent on them, even if it was like five years ago and I know I will not wear this thing anymore. So I need to do a, a closet purge one of these days. <laughs> uh, my current thing that I'm obsessed with, I bought a pair of the knockoff brand, like platform ankle Uggs from Amazon. I'm part of the problem. Sorry, guys. And they're so comfortable. I'm obsessed with them. They were half the price of the Uggs. Uh, and I'm just, I'm in love with them. I, you know, waterproof them, of course, so they'll last longer. But uh, the thing that I regret that I've spent probably some money on is I kind of got sucked into the Good American gene sale at the end of the year. And mm. I, I just, I overdid it. I overdid it on the quantity of jeans because I'm like, well, they're only $50. I'll buy 100 pairs. Sales are hard. Yeah. What about you, Steph? Well, I have to get rid of a lot of audio equipment, but I I also bought, there was like a Carhartt sale. This is like, I'm the biggest gay person right now. I'm outing myself. But there was a Carhartt sale recently and I bought like different pairs of pants, like four different pairs of pants. I love Carhartt. And two of them don't fit me. Which is ridiculous because, like, I have so many, like, I know what size I am, but they must have changed the thing and I can't return them because they were final sale. So I'm mad about those purchases. That is annoying. You just Poshmark them. Yeah. The best thing I purchased recently, hmm. Um, well, I mean, this is silly, but I broke my leg, as you both know, because mm-hmm. I was on a scooter at the panel we were all on. But I just started doing PT and it's really expensive. And I was thinking of not doing it as often because it's expensive. But then I decided that it was really worth it to invest in my body. So I'm going twice a week, which I feel actually really good about. Good. And I can walk almost now. <laughs> almost. You're getting there. Almost. You have to carry you on and off the stages. No, but I did love that. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh, we do have one question that was uh, in the mailbox that I would love to hear your take on, Tori. Hi, Mina. This is Marin from Columbus, Indiana. I am also the owner of two small businesses, as well as a little part-time job to help keep some stability on the income flow. And I was wondering how you manage your time and efficiency when you're going from so many different projects, from one job site to the next, to maybe some professional meetings, to maybe trying to figure out a time to work out in there. Um, How do you stay motivated and get the little tasks done in between all of these other moving pieces. Appreciate any insight that you have. Love the show and now the podcast. Thanks so much. Wow, what a concise question. Yeah, that was good. So I would love your take on that, Tori, because you obviously are, you know, very business, uh, very business, very busy woman. Uh, You know, I'm sure handling all kinds of things. So uh, what are your thoughts there? If you can delegate, delegate. Uh, we were talking about that earlier, but truly, like, if I-, I always ask myself, can someone else do this? And if the answer is yes, I probably need to hand it off. Somebody can't show up in a trench coat as me at a speaking engagement, right? But like, somebody can post on TikTok or somebody can manage a calendar. So I think that that's one thing. Um, if you haven't like taken an audit of things you could, could potentially delegate, go ahead and do that. Um, the second is that, uh, I am bad at setting boundaries and I, one of my big things in 2023 is being better about setting boundaries of like, I, uh, try to take every Friday off and there's some times where that's not going to happen and that's okay. 
There's other times where I'm like, "Ah, I could do it on Friday, but it can also wait till Monday. And so Mm. I think that, um, being diligent and realizing that again, you can't pour from an empty cup and you need to take care of yourself first. And even if that is okay, I'm fitting 20 minutes in to just take calls while I'm on the treadmill. Great. Um, so yeah, delegate when you can and set boundaries and know that it's also really hard. We're all trying to figure it out. There is no like magical solution. Um, I've been running a, you know, very successful business for a while now, and I still haven't figured it out fully about how to take care of myself and also manage my own ambition. And so know that we're trying to navigate it to the best of our ability too. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, to piggyback on that a little bit, I, my self-care thing, every two weeks I get a massage come hell or high water and I feel terrible about it every time, but it's about a 25 minute drive to the gal and a 25 minute drive back. So I use those times to have touch base calls with my team, answer questions. Um, cause I'll just put it on speakerphone and, you know, go on autopilot. So I think I try to Some people feel multitasking is not a thing. You can't do more than one thing well. But when I get up and work out in the morning, even this morning, while I was working out, I was listening to one of your podcast episodes, Tori, um, just to get even more like background and inspiration and knowledge. And I do that a lot. So I don't, you know, zone out on music in the morning, which, you know, is, is nice sometimes when you're working out. But I'll listen to a book on tape. I'm listening to Come As You Are. And if you guys haven't read that, it's so freaking good. And I'm really trying to get her on the podcast. And I made my husband start listening to it. And he's like, what? What is this? Because he's a dude. But he'll get there. Um, (laughs) So I spend those times that are available. I can't read a book, but I can listen to it. Um, And I just, I get up early. And I would like to, I have problems with boundaries as well. For a while, we didn't film on Mondays. So Mondays could be an office day. And then that pretty quickly didn't become a thing. And right now I'm in the position where we're, you know, we're filming season eight, but we don't have a contract necessarily for anything going forward. So really trying to reestablish some boundaries that I'm going to enforce um, because it's gotten to a point in the last year where I've had a couple panic attacks, you know, cry attacks because it's it's too much. So not doing it well all the time, I think is also really important for people to hear and a big part of why I have the podcast because I think there's so much to say that you guys can't see just on our social media accounts or just on a TikTok blurb. Um, For most people, it is the highlight reel. So while it looks like I'm managing everything well and I'm working out and I'm staying fit and my husband's handsome and my kids are cute, it's a lot of work. And a lot of times I do it poorly. Um, So (laughs) for what that's worth. I think there's also a good shift, like both of you are saying, is like not thinking as taking time for yourself or doing things for yourself as something that's taking away from your business or taking away from the other parts of your life, but as actually like, you know, going to help those areas grow too. Um, but also mm-hmm. I, I think I'm the same as you, Mina, like wake up early and work out. Cause if I, if I don't do it first thing in the morning, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, it has been lovely talking to you. Um, I'm super excited to read your book. I'm definitely going to listen to more of the episodes. But give your book, your socials, so people know if they don't already know about you, um, where they'll be able to find you. You can find me on all the socials at Her First 100K, H-E-R-F-I-R-S-T-100K. And the book and podcast are called Financial Feminist. Thank you so much for being on. And thank you guys all for listening. Please don't forget to leave a question. The link is in the show notes. If you want to record one, you can also just message me. Please don't forget to follow and share with your friends. And I'll see you guys next Tuesday. 